This is Color Speak, unveiling truth for light. Hi, I'm your host, Janet Huxley, author J.M. Huxley. Welcome to this podcast to unveil truth and uplift you. Here you will find truth talk for relevance restoration, social influence, and dynamic purpose in all places and all seasons. Here we will unveil truth for color. Light is where you'll find truth. Truth is where you'll find color. And color is where you'll find God. Color is God. It's His love for you. Light is what makes color happen. Color is a product of light, and cod is light, so color testifies. And if color speaks of the everlasting goodness of a good God, who wants to fill us with light and truth and joy and love, color, it stands to reason He'd like us to do the same for one another. We are called to love one another, to fill each other with light and truth and joy, to care and support and provide for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what living an abundant life is all about. This is what this podcast, Color Speak, is all about. When God first told me to do a podcast, I had no idea where to begin, but I knew it would start with people like our next guest. People with stories to tell, specifically women like our guest today with testimonies of the living God in our midst. One who isn't like secularists dismiss, a God impossible to believe in the darkness that seems to envelop our world, or even a creator like deists believe who made everything supposedly and then stepped back to watch us blunder along in it, suffering in our striving. Neither is he a universe God, one we can choose among many, who fits the model we'd prefer. This podcast is about knowing the one true God and giving testimony to this truth. So, Color Speak has always been about encouraging one another through knowing, without a shadow of a doubt, that our God is intricately involved in each tiny detail of our lives, so much so that he delights in relationship with us. Ah, what a difference that makes. We can't believe the lies of an enemy who works diligently to convince us this isn't so. Life is full of heartache and sorrow, but that doesn't mean our God isn't for us, that he isn't always working all things for good for those who are following him. Our guest today is someone who has risen above a traumatic past to live in the light of God. Faye Bryant is an author, coach, and speaker who helps individuals escape the lies of the enemy, live into God's truth, and build a better life by first feeling, dealing, and healing their way through a stuck future or an abused past toward a deeper path of purpose and into the unhackable life of their chosen legacy. She's the author of Ramblings from the Shower, Integrity, Faith, and Other Simple Yet Slippery Issues. <laughs> and Faye helps people who have endured trauma, whether of their own making, such as addiction and poor choices, or those who have had that pushed upon them, who recognize they have worth and purpose, determine what their God-designed purpose is, and then move and live confidently without distraction toward that purpose to live the life God designed for them. Faye is the child of functional alcoholics who experienced the trauma of parents who weren't present for her, even when they were with her. She felt outcast even to them. She knows the pain of loneliness and neglect. 
But childhood trauma isn't all of it. She had bullying, lies, rape, abuse, betrayal, all which ruled her life. She's known loneliness, hurt, fear, shame, self-recrimination, and the brink of suicide. There's so much more to talk about today regarding Faye and all of her books, but I just want to stop right there and just welcome Faye aboard Color Speak today. I have been wanting to talk with her for so long. So Faye, welcome. It is so good to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. I met you a couple of years ago, and we've known each other for a while now, and I've always been so impressed with your enthusiasm and faith and what you're doing to buoy women in our community. Well done. I know you have a (laughs) number of books out. Well, tell me about those, other than the one I mentioned. Right. Uh, Well, the one that you mentioned is simply, um, it's truly ramblings from the shower. It was conversations with God. You know, when when you do your devotion time and and you're like, well, Lord, speak to me, and you don't always get it right then. Sometimes it's when you're doing the rote things where you don't have to think to do them, like taking a shower that he then speaks to you. And I would get out of the shower with this new revelation and I'd be, Oh Lord, you need to, somebody needs to write this down. They need to make a book about this. And one day he said, I want you to write a book about this. (laughs) And so there it came. (laughs) That's the way he works. Right. And uh, other than that, I have, I've written a devotional. I've taken um, 40 of the devotions that I write on social media each day. And grouped those into an ebook that is called Coffee Bible Journal Musings from the Comfy Chair with a View, <laughs> which is the 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 name for the place where I have my meeting with God every morning. I get to look out at mountains and just see beauty and uh, and enjoy time with Him. Then uh, last spring I wrote, um, it's called This Is Good. Uh, reconciling Romans 8.28 in unprecedented crises, which takes the story of when I had to deal with Romans 8.28 in my own unprecedented crisis and how we can look at using it to get through this time that we're living in right now. Hmm. Then I've written fiction. I started a series called The Grandma, Mom, and Me Saga which started basically written about my grandmother, my mother, and me. So uh, those are the, right now, you can get Louise and Elena, and then Beth is coming out at the end of this month. Well, I, I regret to say, and I do so rather sheepishly, considering the number of years we've been friends now, that I have not read those. They are on my list. One of them, I can't remember which one, is downloaded onto my Kindle, And I used to furiously try to read everything before having my guests on Color Speak. And then I realized it was not only an exercise in futility, it really had me putting off those people like yourself I wanted to talk with. And I don't want the fact that I haven't read your books to hold me up from that. And that's what I decided. No longer. (laughs) I just needed to have Faye on. Okay, so let me stop down and ask you to expand a little bit about that view of yours you're talking about. Well, I live just outside the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And oh, my goodness. Yeah. And from my my comfy chair, I get to look out at a mountain that on the other side is Cades Cove, 
which is a place where um, it was a community of over 600 families when the national park came in to being. And so uh, my husband's family was, uh, is descended from there. Wow. I need to come visit you and sit with you in that big comfy chair. Well, maybe not in the chair with you, but near you. <laughs> I love that place. I, I might like <laughs> a couple of mornings. <laughs> Well, I know we've talked a little bit about it, and I'm seriously eager to take you up because my husband's family is from that area. One of the first places that we visited when we were dating was the beautiful Smoky Mountains, and uh, we just had we had a great time traversing that area. It's just gorgeous. So I'm a little it jelly. Is. Any season. Yes, for sure. Well, awesome. And I will get to your books. What a wonderful gift. What a wonderful legacy that is to your family that you've written those beautiful books for them. Well, and I did them as fictionalized because, you know, sometimes when there is trauma involved in a family, nobody really wants to talk about it on a biographical level. But writing it in a story where people may not be completely sure if what was said actually happened or didn't happen, then it's much easier. It's it's easier on the palate. Well, frankly, I know that there are a lot of people that feel the way that I do. And I'm, I'm actually puzzled by my ancestors past. I am going through a container of letters my mother just recently gave me, and I'm trying to make sense of them, wishing I had someone to ask about them. Don't have the full picture, probably never will. So I think it's great you're doing that. So what you're saying is in those books you've written about yourself, your mother and your grandmother, you do attest to the abuse you suffered or they suffered during the course of their lives. Yes. Okay. So yes, the reason I even started in this grandma, mom and me saga was because as I was looking at the lives of all three women, grandma, mom and me, I saw similarities and mindsets that were the same and things that happened in those in all three lives, even though we weren't actively talking about them or thinking about them or pursuing those things, they still happened. And so it was this common thread that was woven through all three lives. And it would seem that that common thread is trauma and abuse but in reality, the common thread is faith. Ah, that's good. Well, what a gift then that you were able to recognize that because as you were talking about these mindsets or common threads, at first I was thinking, okay, you were looking to break cycles. But that isn't so much true as it is you were wanting to celebrate the faith that overcame all of those things, including the cycles. Correct. Okay. Correct. Now, I had to deal with all my stuff that's, you know, um, when by the time that I wrote, well, that I wrote all three of these, um, both women were gone except for me and I needed to tell their stories, but I wasn't able to help them deal with the things that they had gone through. Hmm. But I also saw how the things that they had gone through affected me and my life and I needed to deal with that. As you said in the introduction, I spent several days where I would wake up in the morning and try to figure out why I should not kill myself that day. Mm, I'm so sorry, Faye. At what point in your life was this? Um, let's see. That was in 2015, about six years ago. So relatively recently. Yes. 
Well, and now let me just say for our listeners, you are the picture of triumph. You have overcome so much. You have written so much. You are encouraging women. You have a podcast on YouTube. You have lost so much weight, which again, is so encouraging to people. You've just taken your life by its horns and you're moving forward. And what an illustration of encouragement that is for other women. Well, you know, when you can deal with the things of the past, and it's not easy. It's not easy to look back at each of these things and determine what actually happened and who was actually responsible for it. But when you walk through that pain, knowing that you're here today and that you're just visiting it, you're not going back and enduring it again, but you feel all the feelings and you deal with those things from a place of safety and a place of maturity, then you are able to actually handle them correctly instead of just stuffing them down inside yourself. When you're able to do that, you stop surviving and you start living. Mm, That's such good advice. I know that there's a lot of women out there that look at you and think, I want to be just like her. I really do. It's just a wonderful testimony. Where to begin? Would it be okay to talk a little bit more in length about some of your stories? Obviously, we want to encourage people to buy your books, but what can you tell us about each one of these women that made such an impact in your life and whose testimonies you are now using to impact others? Okay, yeah, I, I don't mind sharing. Uh, let's look at Grandma. She was um, she was born and lost her mother a year later. Uh, she never knew her her birth mother. Her father remarried. And then something happened to that lady. And so my grandmother at age eight became the one who had to do all the laundry, all the cooking, all the cleaning, all the running to the creek to fetch water. She married very young and she ended up having a number of children. She had one son who was barely 16 and he just he dropped dead. We suspect that it was like the uh, enlarged heart thing. Back then, they they didn't look for that. They didn't find those things out. He just, he died and that was that. And, you know, that affected my mother's life because she was right there when it happened. She was about four years younger. Shortly after that, then my grandfather died. In just a quick succession, my grandmother knew joy and happiness and fulfillment, and then death on top of death, and then the the uncertainty of how she was going to put a meal on the table for herself and her daughters. Her boys were grown and gone at that point, so she wasn't going to rely on them, but she managed, and she survived, and she taught her daughters, and she managed to, to have a faith influence in their lives and in the lives of their children. Then we look at Elena. Well, I was going to, let me ask you, let me stop you right there if you don't mind. I was going to say, is that Louise? And it definitely sounds like it was. What year did all of this take place? Is this like early 1900s? Yes, she was born in 1899. Okay. And this is in the same area you're in now? Is it in the Tennessee area or in that region? No, that was in Northeast Arkansas. Ah, okay. 
Okay. Right. Tucked right up in the boot heel. <laughs> Which when you read the book, you will not see um, very many references to the actual towns and places. You'll see that it's Northeast Arkansas, but you're not going to see the towns that I, that actually exist because, you know, anonymity. Right. We're talking about small towns and small communities. And those who are in that area will read the book and they might know some of the people and uh, that are talked about. And that's great. And those who don't, don't need to know. Sure. Yeah. No, I understand that. She was born in 1930 and was the first daughter. She was the apple of her daddy's eye and he of hers. Uh, Everywhere that he went, she went. And then she, you know, life was great as far as she knew. You know, she hadn't known anything but the, the sharecropping farmer poverty life that they had. But she experienced that issue with her brother dying. She literally ran across the playground and lifted his head into her lap as he was taking his last breath. Wow, that would have been traumatic for her. Right? And then mm-hmm. as her father was teaching her how to swim. And then he passed away. The best I can figure from what was from the stories of the family is that he had some sort of abdominal cancer. Here she was, the oldest child at home. Her father had taught her how to drive. And she was the one that knew how to drive, even if it wasn't the best driving. (laughs) There's a story that that my aunts love to tell about when she drove into a gravel pit. Hmm. They they have a lot of those around where they grew up. And so she drove down into the gravel pit and just shifted gears and drove right back up out the other side. Wow, that's impressive. I live on a gravel while road. They all bouncing, I can imagine. While they were all bouncing around the inside of the car. Goodness. <laughs> she got married very young. She did not like being called into duty of having to help support the family. And... She learned some things that managed to get her attention, and those continued throughout her life, um, which I won't go into like right here. That's that's good reading. But then she met this gentleman who was um, five years older than her, and she married him when she was 14. Oh, goodness. He went, uh-huh. Oh. He, yeah, I know. Well, then... Um, A lot of the people from that area went off to Detroit during that time. A lot of the. So is this the same? Is it the Arkansas area still? Right. The same, the same in Arkansas. And, you know, this was uh, during the war Mm -hmm. when she was or close to the end of the war when she married him. But there's still, you know, a big boom of car building going on. And so he somebody got him on at one of the plants and they went up there. And there were things that happened. He, They lived with his aunt and uncle for a bit. She was a new mother, uprooted from her family, living in a place with an abusive couple. And it was just horrible. Well, then they managed to get their own place. And soon after, he betrayed her. And her mother and brother helped him in that betrayal. There was a rift in the family that lasted for years. And so, you know, there was this whole rending of heart that took forever, it seemed like, to be repaired. But in time, forgiveness was sought and given, and the family was restored. And that is something that, that I, I feel runs through all three. 
learning how to ask for forgiveness, learning the necessity to give forgiveness. You know, all those things are uh, are woven in that story as well. Wow. Well, and it was sort of reminding me when you were talking about them heading north out of Arkansas to find work in Detroit. Have you ever read Hillbilly Elegy? It was working class Americans in crisis, but they were in, well, as my husband says, from his area, they would call it the Appalachians. And I said, we always learn them as the Appalachians. But at any rate, it was people from that group, Kentucky. He's right. Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah. So, well, he would know, obviously, he and his family. So they headed from the Appalachians (laughs) into uh, an area of Ohio for work. Sounded a little similar there for a minute. And that's, I'm sure, where the parallels end. But what a wonderful testimony that you could write about all of that for them. So, Faye, when you started writing, was it really a response to something you always desired to do, which was to write? Or was it that you felt it was a calling and you needed to get out on paper, on screen, those stories you knew that belonged to your family So in other words, were you writing simply to share those testimonies or to share your stories? Or have you always had a love of writing? I think I've always had a love of writing. I know I've had a love of reading since I was a kid. I mean, mom would and I would go to the library at least every other week and get the whole you could check out five at a time. And so, you know, that was the way we did it. Um, But I think. The first time that anybody ever said anything to me about I should consider writing was when I left my employment at Walt Disney World and had to do the exit interview. You had to do a written exit interview. And when the person that I spoke with, he read it and he looked at it and he said, you know, you really ought to be a writer because apparently I wrote more than the two sentences that everybody else did. (laughs) Wow. Well, I am so intrigued. Tell me about that. How did you end up working at Walt Disney World and what did you do? (laughs) Well, you know, I grew up in Kissimmee. Well, my middle school and high school years were in Kissimmee, Florida. And Disney, when it opened, it was, you know, it's like the place to work, the whole happiest place on earth, all that good stuff. And it actually paid the best at that point. So in a time when uh, minimum wage was like uh i don't know a dollar 85 i was making 345 mm, nice right i had to fight to be able to work there though they had very strict costumes what they call them uh sizes they wanted everybody to be able to fit in the costumes that they already had and so when you went in and you shared what your height and your weight was they would say well you don't match our criteria so you don't fit, which really helped with my self-worth issues. But a friend and I had decided that we were going to give it one more try. I could walk into any store at that point and step into a size 10 with no problem. So I went out there and they said the same thing again. And I said, wait a minute, prove it, prove that I don't fit your costumes. And then I'll walk away and I won't ever be back again. But you proved to me that I can't fit your costumes. And they took me up on it and my friend as well. And so we went back into they allowed us to go into the secret areas where you would get your costume. And it was funny because the lady that was working the wardrobe section looked at me and she goes, oh, she looked me up and down a second. She goes, oh, you're like, what, a size 10? What are you (laughs) about, about five, three there? I'm like, yes. And she goes, "Okay, hang on. 
She brings me out the costume that I would need for the area that they were considering me for. And boom, I got hired. Nice. I love your perseverance. That is awesome. It reminds me of a story. So I, so I was a figure skater and a number of the girls I skated with, I already had an idea I was going off to college, but several of them decided it would be a good idea if we try out for the ice capades and they wanted me to go with them. And I was thinking, yeah, I mean, okay, uh, you know, that that sounds like an okay plan, I guess. We'll come to find out some of the girls, including myself, were a little bit on the tall side for what they were looking for. They were looking for girls between like, at the time, 5'1 and 5'3 or 5'4. I was nearly 5'6 and one of my friends was 5'10, my roommate in college. And my best friend was somewhere in between the two of us. And we just marveled at how of the group that went, it was the smaller, shorter girls that ended up working for the ice capades. It wasn't us. <laughs> but we always we always laughed about that afterward, that there was a certain height huh. they were looking for. And we we kind of should have understood that because right? we were all on a it, on a team, a precision team. And so there was a height thing that we had to deal with too. And of course it was all about, you know, our coach was always very mindful of encouraging us about eating right and making sure we maintained the physique required to be in those outfits or costumes on the ice. I don't think that we'd see any of that nowadays, right. but I don't know. So you, why did you leave? Why did you leave the happiest place on earth? Was <laughs> it a happy experience for you? It was a wonderful experience. I, um, I worked in the area called Coke Corner, which at that time there was a, a little soda shop at the end of Main Street, and that was the Coke Corner. There was also the ice cream parlor across from there. There was the Plaza restaurant that was just back on us, like on an alley from there. And there was the Sarah Lee Bakery. Those were all part of that one area, as well as what they called outdoor foods, which was your ice cream wagons and your popcorn wagons. I ended up working on an ice cream wagon right in front of Cinderella's Castle. I was so excited. I thought that was going to be fabulous. Because I loved those bright yellow scooter skirts that they had and the bright yellow polo tops that went with them. And it was going to be great. And then they explained to me that, no, in the summer, in the Florida summer, you wear the themed costume for that land that you're working in. Main Street's themed costume was a fitted bodice shirt with sleeves that came down just above your elbows. Uh-huh. It was a thick seersucker material and a skirt that was long with a long slip under it and a heavy apron that went over the top of it. Oh, that sounds dreadful in the Florida heat. It was, it was uh. trying. It was trying. But at the same time, I got to to visit with so many different people oh, and, you did. and to be able to, you know, to help them brighten their day and help them enjoy the park a little bit. It was always fun, too. They had what they called the character parade each day, uh, once an hour in the afternoons. And so right there in front of Cinderella's castle and the the, the characters, Tigger, Winnie the Pooh, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, all these different characters would come out on the stage and they would dance. And then they would come by my, my ice cream cart always, pretty much every time, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, because it was part of who they were, would come over and annoy me. <laughs> 
They would they would open every every lid on the ice cream trailer. They would uh, try to get into my cash box and the whole nine yards. And it was just, you know, it was just always part of the routine. I'd act like I was smacking their hands and the guests would just eat it up. Oh, that's so cute. Well, it seems I, like it would be a fun place just because everyone, for the most part, would be pretty happy. Right. I would and think. It was yeah. fun, but I'm I met a guy. Oh, that's why you left. That's why I left. I thought it was going to be wonderful. And I left there because he was leaving there. And, you know, I, I made some decisions at that point in my life that were not the brightest. So went on from there. Well, I guess that leads me into my next comment. And by the way, I did want to say I related to all of that on a level because I worked at SeaWorld. And uh, I don't know that it was the happiest place on earth, but, you know, people were, tourists can get a little grumpy sometimes, but I was glad for the experience of it at the end of things. So, Faye, you know, I wanted to, to ask you, and this might be, you know, the perfect time to do that why you feel so motivated to help women in crisis, those who have gone through trauma. What is your story there? I mean, without getting into too much detail, what I mean by that is, what is it that causes you to feel the need to minister to others in that regard? I, uh, as you said in the introduction, when I was young, mom and dad drank. Uh, that was their go-to for everything. It was their fun. It, and now that I've lived through it, I see that that was the way that they had, they handled the the trauma in their own lives. And so I grew up doing homework at a table at the back of a bar for a lot of years. Friends that we had, you know, they were drinking buddies and that was, that was just the way of life. When I was 12, I was taken to a pool party that I wasn't actually invited to. And rather than taking me home, I was left to sit in the garage and watch a TV that only got one channel and didn't get it well. And I was subjected to a molestation at that point. Later on, I experienced uh, date rape, married a man who whose first uh, words to me after we got married was, if you ever get as fat as your mother, I'll divorce you. Oh, gosh. Sounds yeah. like you were married to the wrong man. Yes, I was. At that point, I was. Mm. And, you know, just all these things. And I just, I dealt with them. So I thought I dealt with them by stuffing them down and just going on. You know, you just, you figure out the lane that you can walk and you walk it. What I want women to see is that you don't have to find a lane and walk. You can find healing. Your worth is not built up, is not dependent on any other person on this planet. Your worth is built on you, that you are a created being in the image of Almighty God. That he loves you so much, he calls you a masterpiece. And when we think about a masterpiece, we think about, I mean, just off the top of your head, the Mona Lisa. It hangs in this amazing museum that people flock to in order to see this masterpiece and others. This masterpiece is hung in a specific place on a wall that is visible 
And it is a place to visit, is a place to hang out and look and observe and view this amazing masterpiece. It is lit correctly, perfectly, so that all of the amazing aspects of this masterpiece are visible and viewable. And part of it draws people in and it helps them see and sense who they are because of that masterpiece. This is how God sees us, is his masterpiece. We are somebody that he then holds up to others and says, do you see? Do you see? And we as women, so many of us from childhood up have been taught that we are not a masterpiece, that we are lesser than because we are tall or short or fat or thin or because we have, I don't know, skin that isn't the most beautiful and it hasn't been airbrushed and whatever. We think that we have to cover up who we are in order to be accepted. And I want people, I want women to recognize that that is not the truth, that the truth is you are amazing as you were created. And yes, it's time, it is time to walk in that. Well, Faye, how did you get to that point? I mean, after all that you had been through, it sounds to me like you had a a jerk of a husband who wasn't able to affirm you in that way. What was it that changed for you that you came to this understanding and embraced it so hard, wholeheartedly? I, in back in 2015, my mother died in March and it was kind of like that was the last thing on that top of on top of all of the stuff I had squished down and I came to realize that was when I was trying to figure out why I should not die that day and I sought mm. help I asked for help I couldn't I didn't feel like I wanted to do a whole psychologist thing I'd had a bad run in with the psychologist arena at one point and so I had a friend who is a recovering addict and at that point had been for several years attending a Celebrate Recovery group in the town nearby to us. And I asked her, was that for me too? Because I, you know, I, I didn't, you, I couldn't do the NA meetings because I'm not an addict. I couldn't do the AA meetings because I'm not alcoholic. But could I do this Celebrate Recovery thing? And she said, absolutely, come on. And I walked in and I got to tell you, I tell everybody this when I about the CR. The first evening I walked in, I was looking at scoping out every exit. <laughs> I wanted to know how I could get out of this place. And instead, I ended up enjoying it. And I began the hard work of becoming who I was supposed to be. Like I said before, it took a lot of digging. It took a lot of looking in, at everything that I had dealt with. And it was surprising when I realized who was really responsible for so many of the things in my past. I had to deal with those people in each of those areas. And some of the the dealing with it from an aspect of of being the person abused or, or traumatized is not that you go and make amends, but it's that you go and you confront. And it's never in a in a, a vengeful kind of way. That's not the way it works. You confront with forgiveness. But I, I'm wondering how faith played a part in all of that. 
But it sounds to me like the biggest component there would be the ability to forgive. Celebrate Recovery is a Christ-based program. Oh, okay. So every time that the big group meets, you're having church, you're singing praise songs, and you are hearing a message from the Lord. Um, And in the small groups, in the share groups, everything is based on following truth and doing the things that he calls us to do. And that's where I knew that I needed to deal with these people. I needed to to deal with myself and these people in ways that were glorifying to him that offered forgiveness and that then see forgiveness. So many times we think that that is saying, oh, well, what you did, it's it's OK. You know, just don't don't mind. Don't worry about it. And that is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is confronting the issue and saying this is what happened. This is the part that you had in it. And this is my forgiveness for it. I'm wiping the slate clean. You owe me nothing for this. And when we do that, that takes all of that mess off of our plate. It takes every bit of it off of our shoulders. I cannot tell you the relief, the release that came from me doing those things. There were some that I was able to talk to in person that I dealt with. My dad was 93 at the time and I wasn't going to try to talk to him about this stuff. So I put him in with the group of people where the ones who had done the things were either people I could not make contact with. There was one who had already passed away. And what I did with those was I wrote a letter to that person and I, I said everything in the letter as though I were speaking it to them in person And at the end of each letter, I wrote the words, I forgive you. Well, then my husband built a fire for me outside. And I sat there, just me and God and the fire. And I read that letter out loud. And then I took it and placed it on the fire, signifying that as the ashes rolled away, the forgiveness was done. There was nothing more of debt. And I'm done with it. Well, sounds like a nice guy. So that's not the same man that you were married to initially, I'm guessing. No, this is the second marriage. And (laughs) it's almost 31 years old. That's awesome. Congratulations to you. That is very, very cool. So this Celebrate Recovery, which is Christ-based, is all about celebrating recovering from whatever trauma you've suffered through Christ. And so when you're talking about writing letters, you're talking about having written letters or confronting your molester, your rapist, your abuser, those who inflicted trauma on you. Is that correct? Yes. Wow. How did that go for you? Well, it's it's funny. The, um, the molester, all I ever knew was his first name. So I just wrote the letter to that first name. But I still could see, you know, you can your memory holds these things. And so I could still see the picture of this man. And I wrote this letter as though, you know, you were over 30 years old. You knew I was 12 years old. You had no reason whatsoever to put your hands on me or to move my hands where you wanted them. You did not. You knew better. We're wrong. You knew better. I have learned (laughs) that most of us who have endured being molested or raped blame ourselves for it. We, we hold in our, in our inner being this thought. We may not even hold it consciously, but we hold this thought that somehow something we did brought it on. Mm, this is true. And so 
writing this letter and speaking these words out loud as I was reading it out loud helped my mind to see I didn't do anything to bring it on. I didn't invite it. I didn't ask for it. It was done. And so because I offered that forgiveness, because I said, you know what, you have owed me this debt. It's, you know, you owe me, you owe me. And then I said, but wait, let me just wipe it away. I don't need you to pay me back. Right. Well, and I also think that for those that are the perpetrators or the ones inflicting harm, there are varying degrees of awareness on their part as well. So in confronting them, there are some I'm thinking that probably had no earthly idea. They were just wrapped up in their own selfish, narcissistic ways at the time, and they just proceeded through life as consumers without any regard for anyone else. And perhaps later in life, upon reflection, or in a case such as yours, where they're being called out for such, perhaps they're in a different place where they can look back and go, yeah, you know what? I was really selfish. You know, I think of the very first well, relationship I was ever in, and I'm thinking, would would he even... Could he have ever come to terms with that reality is how selfish he truly was, but perhaps not. I mean, I don't know. I think this is well, one I, step in the I right direction. Not, right. I did not confront that guy other than with that letter. I did not. Um, the date rape I did not confront because I have been in connection with the man, with the man he has become. And he is a man who is faithfully serving the Lord. He is married for gobs of years and has family that he has raised up in the Lord. And I recognize that I could give him forgiveness without speaking sure. to him. Yeah, I agree with that. I can see that. Well, what happened was when I went to my high school reunion a couple of years ago, I saw him and it was the weirdest thing. I had already given the forgiveness. So when I saw him, I was like, hey, how are you? You know, I gave him a hug just like I did everybody else. And when I got back home, I wrote about that experience. And craziest thing, within an hour after I had written what I shared, he messaged me and said, Faye, was that me? See, that's what I'm and talking had, about earlier. I think a lot of people, men, don't realize right. as they're being fueled by their hormones at young ages, how truly selfish they are. And then maybe with a few years of wisdom and a little God on their side, you know, they come around and they think, wow, I had no idea I was that way. I don't know. Right. This is such a topic to explore, and it could get so in-depth, and really, uh, unfortunately, time doesn't permit us to continue. I just, I do want to hear from you, though, about in, in doing all of this that you're doing now for for the betterment of society and the kingdom and women and all of that, you know, at the end of the day, we talk about all of that as being great, but how do you know God is real, Faye? How do you know that that he is truly the one that has your back through all of this? I would say there are two gigantic things. The first being this healing of my heart that I have now since I walked that journey of recovery. The ability to think and consider and talk to these some of the people that I had issues with. And there be no reticence in talking to them. There's no anger. 
in talking to them. There's a healing in my heart. I have peace. I have joy. And I never had that before. And then secondly, in 2013, my husband suffered a, uh, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is 95% fatal for those who have it. Of the 95% who, of the 5% who survive it, 50% of those people have some severe deficit, paralysis or whatever. My husband had that. He had this hemorrhage begin at like six o'clock in the morning. You know, they talk about the golden hour for people who have strokes. And I didn't catch it in that golden hour. Matter of fact, I thought it was just a flu bug. And then eight hours, about eight hours later, I managed to get him to a clinic who then explained, I think he's having a stroke and then got him to the hospital. By all rights, he should not be alive. The doctor at the emergency room at the local university, University of Tennessee Hospital, came in to see him on his seventh day in the ICU and said, I would not give a plug nickel for your life that night you came in. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking there are better ways he could have phrased that, I suppose. <laughs> well, you know, it was perfect oh, for my husband who, okay. who would actually talk yeah, like that I mean, as well. Yeah. But to, you know, to hear that this ER doctor, very experienced doctor, one who has seen these things before, said, essentially, he said, I knew you were a dead man. We did everything we could. We got you to the place where you could receive the care that you need. But I, I just knew you were not going to make it. All the factors, all the, the circumstances were stacked up against him. But, but God. God. Yeah. And there's a lot of but gods in your life. You recently went through something yourself. Yes. You didn't expect me to ask that, but I know you've been open about it online. Oh, yeah. Are you talking about the cancer? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but God. <laughs> <laughs> in 2000, I had stage three melanoma on my ear and I lost uh, about a third of one of my ears. And then, you know, here I am a 21 year survivor and was suddenly getting the phone call that said that place that we removed on your leg is melanoma. And I was like, oh, OK. Um, and I have to tell you, there's there's still that pause. When you hear that, it's scary mm -hmm. because melanoma it can be deadly. There's a difference between the woman of 2000 who heard that and had to go through all of that and the woman of 2021 who heard that and went through it. I walked in faith with that first one, but I could not believe that I was really worthy to have that healing. Mm. I could believe that I deserved to live. This woman in 2021 said, Lord, you've got so much on my plate. I need to get this thing done and over with. You just need to take care of this for me. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. He did. I was expecting to go through um, what they call a sentinel node test, which is where they use a nuclear isotope that they shoot into the place of the original tumor and they go to, they follow that to the first lymph node and they take it and do testing on it to make sure if there are any cancer cells in it. If there are no cancer cells, they have to go no further in finding any other lymphatic issues. If there are cancer cells, then they go until they find one that doesn't have any cancer cells. 
Now, in 2021, there is a test, a genetic test that they can do on the original tumor, the part that was taken for biopsy, and can determine your risk factor of having any lymphatic involvement. They did that test on my biopsy, and it came back just the day before I was scheduled for surgery and said, your risk factor is so low as to be inconsequential. Praise God. This is the last one last week, right? This is Yeah, this is what happened. I got that call on Thursday and they said, you don't need to have that sentinel node test. You're looking really good. We just need to get the, you know, they, they need to do an excision to make sure that they get everything that could possibly have been damaged by or could contain any cancer cells from right around where that was at. What I had said from the beginning was that everything that was on my skin was where the cancer was and there was no more. And God proved that statement of faith out last Friday. Well, I'm impressed. That was quite an incision because I know you posted it online and I'm thinking for crying out loud, it looked like it went down the entire length of your back leg. Well, I do have short legs. (laughs) Wow. Uh, But they got it and this is great. Good news. It sounds to me like... Your faith has produced this sanctification of sorts as you, as I hear you talking about the difference in your attitude between the first experience and the second, um, and how wonderful that is, because your faith is sustained. I know this is one of your questions that I asked you earlier, and you, you said your faith is sustained through the reading of the word and the application of it to your life. So yes. for somebody who's listening in who doesn't really, um, hasn't really ever processed that, what is that? truly like Faye, at the end of the day, how does reading the word and processing its application affect your life? When I read the word daily, sometimes more than once a day, it creates a filter in my mind so that everything that comes at me has to go through that filter. When I am relying completely on God instead of taking on the responsibility for the things that are his, I am a recovering codependent. I have done this in the past, thinking that everything is my responsibility. When I choose to allow everything else to be his, then the things that I see come from that bolster my faith and say, see, that was the right choice. See, that was good. And then as I read the word continually, and I look at how it applies to every day walking around life, I can live in a way that pleases him. You know, Jesus said that the way we show that we obey him is when, or that we love him is when we obey him. Yes. So if I obey Jesus, if I obey the scriptures, then I am proving to Jesus my love for him. I can say I love you all day long, but if I go out and do the things that are disobedient to his word, my words, I'm I'm too tongued and I don't want to do that. So my faith grows with every of these, every one of these new steps where I take on the word, I take on a scripture, a verse, and I look at it and I it's like picking up something in a science experiment and you turn it around and you turn it over and you Turn it inside out and see, what does this mean to me? And let me tell you, some of those verses and numbers in Leviticus are a little more difficult to do this with, but you can. And you look at these words and you say, this matters to my life today in this way. 
and I can live this way and it pleases God. And when I see that it has pleased him and generally affects somebody else's life too, to encourage them, the scripture tells us to encourage and edify other believers. So when I, when I get to see that happen because of something that I've experienced from the scriptures, then it's like, wow, God, you used me. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, and you just have to be willing. You have to be willing to be used and you have to have the faith that Hebrews talks about, Hebrews 11.1, 1, the evidence of things not seen. You just have to believe. And I, you know, I, I have these discussions a lot with people who don't see things the way I see. And it's not because I'm out there throwing that about, but there are those antagonists who know how I feel and want to sort of, you know, prove their own points, I guess. Not so much they want to ruffle my feathers, but they want to assert themselves. Ah, uh, you're you're really crazy. Ah, uh, you don't have any proof of, of what you're saying. You need a crutch, whatever. Here's the thing. At the end of the day, you're never going to know what Faye's talking about for those who are listening in unless you give it a shot yourself, unless you read the word, unless you apply it to your heart, as Faye's telling you, unless you're just willing to to rely on faith as a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And then will you see results? So that's the beauty of it, is that Jesus never asks us to believe blindly. There's always a willingness on his part to respond to our faith. And so when you put your out, yourself out there, I'm just going to tell you, my friends, you will never be disappointed. You can never go wrong by following Jesus. And that's the thing. That's the thing that I just don't understand with the naysayers. That just tells me, well, you haven't given it a shot, have you really? You know, you're standing on the sidelines. Why don't you get in the game and then let's talk, right? So... Oh boy, we we need to wrap up. We have shot through our time so quickly today, but I just want to ask you before I let you go, Faye, what is your most important thing that you have to say to our listeners today? Remember that you matter. Mm, And I sign off live streams every day with this admonition that I got from Jeremiah. Let me get it right so I don't mess it up. Go wherever God leads. Do whatever God says. And be who he made you to be. Mm, I love that. What scripture is that referenced in Jeremiah? Um, It's a couple different ones um, where he's talking about how he, um, where God is telling him, I made you for this. This is, this is your time. This is what you were made for. And, uh, you know, just to understand that you are you by God's design. Yes, for sure. And that's who you're supposed to be. Yes, not anybody else, just you. You and all your perceived imperfections are really perfections to our God who created you. And yes. you just need to embrace them. Every single one. Love who you are. Take Faye's advice and just stay in connection with the Lord. And he will confirm all of that in you. Very good. Well, my friend, I'm going to have your information up on our show notes. But in the meantime, what is the best way to get a hold of you for those listening? Oh, how fun. I uh, have a website, faybryant.com. Feel free to contact me there. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, you'll see me there at Faye Bryant Speaker. 
And I'm on all, I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find me pretty much anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. And are we to be expecting, okay, Beth is coming out soon. Are you still going to write beyond that? You have other things in the works? I would imagine with the number of books you've already produced, you have plenty <laughs> on the mind <laughs> to keep you busy I'm for a while. God's, I'm thinking God's saying I'm supposed to be telling more about my bariatric journey. So... You want to expand on that a little bit? Well, you know, a lot of people think that having bariatric surgery is the easy way to lose weight. And I will tell them, y'all are nuts. (laughs) This was not an easy thing. But um, to to help people understand those who are not having the surgery but are supporting somebody who has the surgery, they need to know some of the stuff that we go through. Those who are who have gone through the surgery, they need to know that what they're feeling and thinking isn't weird mm-hmm. and, and abnormal. And they need to understand the the greatest lesson that I have learned in this whole journey is celebrating what they call non-scale victories. And just for example, the first time that I could sit in a movie theater seat without part of me touching both sides of the seat, Mm. I wanted to jump up and dance. awesome. Well, I was going to ask you, are you happy you did it? Because you look amazing. Absolutely. (laughs) That's great. And, you know, I have, uh, with this not being able to exercise and stuff right now, I've put a couple of pounds on, but that'll come back off as I get to moving again. I have a, a word that, um, Anybody who's going on any kind of weight loss journey, whether you use bariatric surgery or you just do it on your own, is to stop setting a goal that has anything to do with a scale. Oh, I love that. Yes, you for sure. Set a goal for who you want to be when you have reached what that goal is. For me, I wanted to be the grandmother who was out running the fields and doing stuff with the grandkids instead of sitting on the couch and hearing the stories about it. Right. Well, good for you, because I'm telling you what, my friend, you are an inspiration. And I think you need to write that book because I've known people that have had the surgery and I honestly don't know anyone who's written about it. So there you go. I think you're hearing your calling. Amen. Oh, very good. Faye, it's been such a pleasure having you here. And I'm so glad to call you friend. And I'm so happy that you're doing what you're doing to celebrate what God is doing and to encourage others. Thank you so much for having me, giving me the opportunity to share. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. And the rest of you, thank you so much for listening to us. I hope that you'll continue to join us on Color Speak wherever you find your podcasts. And now on Grace and Truth Radio World. This is J.M. Huxley for Truth Talk on Color Speak, celebrating relevance restoration, social influence, and dynamic purpose in all places and all seasons.